Good morning. I'd like to welcome you as well. If you're a visitor, I'm Brandon Barrett, the lead pastor here at Grace Covenant, and we're glad that you're with us. Uh, you find us this morning a few weeks into a series on worship entitled Vital Worship. And when we say that, we mean vital in both its senses. Uh, vital meaning something that is of incredible importance for us. And vital also meaning something that is life-giving for us as well. Because, you know, we're all worshiping something every moment of your day. You are worshiping something. You are giving your praise to something. You're spending your money towards something that you think you value. You are spending your efforts. You're spending your thoughts. You're orienting your life around something that you think is beautiful and central. And as Christians, we proclaim that we are to be worshipers of God. So uh, we're taking this time to look in a more focused way at what it means for us to be worshipers and to worship Our text this morning comes from Romans chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 21 through 28. You'll find that on page 941 if you're using one of our pew Bibles there in front of you. Let me say, too, if you uh, don't have a Bible and a translation that makes sense to you, take one of ours. Not the one that belongs to the person next to you, but one of the pew Bibles. You You can take that. Before we read our text together, let's Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, as always, people who live before your face, people who are in need of your word. Would you speak to us now through your word given to us in Romans? We need to hear from you. Would you open our hearts that we might, that we might hear you, that we might take it in, that we might be changed by your spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 28. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Word of the Lord given for our good and for His glory. Uh, A number of years ago, 10 or 11 years ago, a movie came out called Contact, maybe maybe many of you uh, saw. And it was based on on a novel by the astronomer Carl Sagan. Uh, Interesting movie, and it opens with this great scene where uh, the the camera is showing a a picture of our our planet, and and the scene is pulling away as we're looking at Earth. And uh, it's incredibly loud and noisy, just all kinds of noise everywhere, and as it, music and talking and all kinds of stuff. And as it gets a little further, the, the, the noise starts to thin out a little bit. And you realize what's happening is uh, that you're, you're, hearing, you're hearing the radio waves that are being emitted from our planet. So right down close, you're, you're getting all the latest news and the latest music. And as you pull back, as it takes radio waves longer and longer to go through space, you start, start backing up through the solar system and, and the noise starts to thin out a little bit. And you're starting to hear older music. You're starting to hear classic rock before it was classic. And um, you know, you're, you're backing up, but you know, somewhere in there you hear uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, and, and 
starts to thin out and thin out until you get to the earliest days of radio, and then you, you're seeing the solar system before you and space just spread out, and it just becomes silence. And it just hangs there for a second. And the camera reverses direction and comes, comes hurtling back to our planet as all the sound begins to bombard your ears again. And then it comes focusing down. as You come down to the earth, down to this one little girl's bedroom. And she's sitting in this bedroom, and she's got a little shortwave radio. And here are the opening lines. CQ, this is W9GFO. CQ, this is W9GFO here. Come back. CQ, this is W9GFO here. Come back. CQ, CQ, this is W9GFO. Is anybody out there? And you've got this little kid listening in. Is anybody listening to me? Is there anybody hearing what I say? And then in the next scene, it shifts to this woman who's now the adult, uh, Ellie Arroway, and she has now got her Ph.D. in astronomy. And she is sitting amid, amidst one of the world's largest radio telescopes, and she's continuing this very same question as she listens, not just with her shortwave radio around the planet, but as she listens out into space, listening for any sort of response. We are speaking, is there anyone speaking back to us? Last week, as we've been talking through, the, uh, through worship, we talked about confession of sin. And we talked about confession of sin being us speaking the truth about ourselves, owning up to what is true, our brokenness, our fallenness, our wrong, saying what is true. But that, that begs the question for a moment of, is anyone listening to us? When we've done this work of actually... Um, saying what is true, of giving this authentic picture of what our lives really are as we lift up our voices in confession, as we do it weekly together, as you may well do during the course of the week, as you confess your sins. Is anybody listening to you? Does anybody hear that? Well, as you might guess, uh, Christianity and the Bible say yes, that someone is listening that there is a God very much invested in what we're saying and very much listening to us and not only listening, that as we speak those words of confession, as we pour it out into the air, there is an answer that comes back to us. That great risky statement of ours, I am sorry, here is what is true about me. The answer comes home to us. I forgive you. And in the order of worship, we call that the assurance of pardon. It's where we come in a very focused way when we worship together each week after our confession of sin, where we hear again God's voice speaking to us, I forgive you. And we find it not just here in our service. We find it scattered throughout in, in the songs that we sing, in the prayers that we pray. Because this very fact is at the very heart of Christianity, our God saying to us, his people, I forgive you. And so as his people, we come back to this statement again and again and again because it is our lifeblood. The forgiveness of God poured out on us through his son, Jesus. So we're this morning talking about assurance of pardon, this voice that comes to us and this one that brings us real assurance and real rest. Uh, we're going to look at the assurance of pardon. We're going to talk about it from Romans 3, this passage that we've just read. Uh, and we're going to see here in Romans 3 um, some incredibly significant things about what Christ has done for us. Uh, laid out in, in one of the most focused ways in the whole Bible. Uh, Martin Luther called this paragraph the chief point of the whole Bible. 
uh, as one modern commentator said, uh, uh, that this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Uh, now, what do you think? Is that intimidating to preach on? Most important paragraph ever written. There's a lot in here, but we're going to concentrate on three things uh, that Paul tells us about pardon and what it means that we can be assured of God's pardon. Paul points us to uh, our central problem, and then he points us to God's extravagant answer to that problem, and then he talks about how we can be connected to that answer. How does that drive home? How does that come home? How does that change us? Okay, so our problem, God's answer, and how that answer comes home for us. Okay, so first, our central problem Uh, Look at verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is it. This is it. This is our problem. And it comes to us in two parts. Now, uh, you may or may not be a a Christian in this room this morning, somebody following Jesus. Uh, Whether you are or not, wouldn't most of us say that when we look around, uh, it's fairly apparent to us that something has gone drastically wrong. You know, you look at the world around you. You look at the things that are happening, you look at the political process, you look at your friends, you look at your family, you occasionally look in the mirror. Something has really gone drastically wrong. You see it in your broken relationships. You see it in the brokenness of your body. You see it in the brokenness of our world. Something has gone wrong. And maybe we would have different theories about what that is. Cornelius Planinger, a Christian uh, philosopher, wrote wrote a book about sin called called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. I think it's just a beautiful title because that is what we see when we look all around us. And the Bible's answer to that, what is it, is exactly this. That sin has come in and marred God's good and perfect world. And it's come and torn a hole right through our very selves and right through our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. The Bible's answer to this is sin. And we see two things about the sin in verse 23. One, we see that we see the central problem has to do with an overstepping of our bounds. That's the first part of 23. All have sinned, all have done wrong in thought, in word, in deed. We are people who have done wrong. Uh, R.C. Sproul, a uh, theologian, calls our sin cosmic treason. We are all people, one way or the other, large and small, that shake our fists at God that will not bow the knee to him, that all have sinned. And you notice the way it it says it here in um, verse 23. When he says all have sinned, the Bible does teach, and it's implied here and it teaches elsewhere too, that each and every one of us before the face of God are sinners. But I will say the larger context of Romans here where Paul is speaking, when he's talking about all, he's talking about all kinds of people. And in Paul's uh, Jewish-shaped mind and worldview, and in the worldview of the Bible, in God's worldview, there were, there were two kinds of people. There were Jews and Gentiles, okay, and that encompassed all of humanity. In the Old Testament, there were God's people, the Jews, and there were Gentiles, everybody else. Paul speaks into the situation where Christ has come, and he says, all people, Jews and Gentiles alike, are caught in the grip of sin. We are all in the same boat. So on one hand, you know, sin is this overstepping. We've all sinned. Second part of this, look in the second part of the verse, all, uh, and we fall short of the glory of God. That sin is both an overstepping and it's also a failure to reach something. Uh, that we fall short of the glory of God. One commentator says this, all people fail to exhibit that being like God for which they were created. 
Because the Bible tells us that we were created in God's image to reflect His goodness, His holiness, His moral majesty to the world. But we are broken and fallen, and we don't reflect that well. We don't reflect it clearly. It is now marred and ruined in the mirror that we are meant to be before God. We don't reflect His glory. We don't reflect His character. Verse 26 tells us something very specific about His character. Look at that. It says that God is just. That God is a just judge. That He is holy and righteous. And therefore, nothing sinful and impure can stand in His sight. He is just. Okay, just as we would expect in our own justice system that evil would be punished, it's true in God's uh, economy as well that He is just. Now, if we have those two realities before us, this God who is glorious and us who have fallen short of His glory, who have sinned, then we now have a very lethal combination. Not lethal for God, but lethal for us. Because we have this God who's created us to be in relationship with Him, and that is broken now. He is holy and without sin, and yet we are shot through with it. How are those two things going to be put back together? How are people like us, who find ourselves in this kind of real reality of sin, how are we going to be reconciled to this God? Well, that's what Paul is taking up for us here. Uh, Jesus puts his finger on this in, in Luke 18, when he talks about... The fact that, that we are all standing before God as people who either trusting in ourselves or trusting in something else to cover our sin, trusting in Jesus. He says it this way in Luke 18. He tells a little story. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Read, very bad guy in the eyes of the Bible. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What does this broken, sinful tax collector do? He confesses. Confession of sin, which we talked about last week. Confession of sin. One confesses and one doesn't. But you see, they're both, as they stand in the temple praying, wrestling with this question of how can sinful people be reconciled to their God? Well, rest of the passage, we get God's extravagant answer. Second part of this. So first we have our problem. Second, God's extravagant answer. Verses 24 and 25. Look again with me. Uh, and are justified by His grace, God's grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Perfectly clear, right? We can all go home now. Uh, it, it, it takes a little chewing. Here's what's going on. Um, he is talking about sort of the mechanics of, of how does God actually bridge this gap? How, how are sinners actually reconciled to him? And, and, and let me give it to you. Let me rephrase it for you in a sentence and then break it down. Here's what's happening in verses 24 and 25. It says this. It's telling us this. God declares us not guilty in the courtroom. God declares us not guilty in the courtroom because Jesus bought us out of slavery by dying a sacrificial death on our behalf. 
Okay, that's complicated too, right? Uh, God declares us not guilty in the courtroom because he's bought us out of slavery by dying a sacrificial death for us. Okay, that's the three parts of this section. Let's break it down a little bit more. First, God declares us not guilty in the courtroom, verse 24, when it says that we are justified. Okay, justified is a legal term. Its, its domain is the law court. Okay, because anytime someone has to go to trial, except for mistrial, there are no mistrials with God. Every time somebody goes to a trial, one of two verdicts is rendered at the end of the day, either guilty or not guilty. Right? One of two verdicts. And so someone who is justified is someone who receives the verdict of not guilty. It means to be acquitted in God's court. Declared not guilty. And so what Paul is telling us is that in God's courtroom, because of the work of Jesus, and we're going to get to in a moment how that happens, he says in God's courtroom, sinners like us, God's people, are declared not guilty. But how is he going to do that? Well, I mean, even as you think about this, uh, about this reality of not guilty, think about this way for you. Let's say you've been a professing Christian for years. You know the term justification. You're familiar with this passage. You know that in God's eyes, because of Jesus, you are now declared not guilty. Well, this passage tells us that as people, when we say not guilty, it's easy to misunderstand that. Because oftentimes when we talk about guilty, what we are talking about is Guilty feelings, right? I, I, I just feel guilty. Well, the Bible here is talking about real, actual guilt. Okay, so let's say after uh, after church uh, this morning, you go out and you go to lunch, and you feel like you get terrible service from the waiter, and rather than just stiff him his tip, you you know you assault him, you take his little wad of cash, you run, you jump in the car, and you speed off across Williamsburg, and somebody you know clocks you going twenty six and twenty five, and they pull you over, and you know, suddenly you're busted and you're taken to jail. And you might then say, you know, I just don't feel guilty. Well, you might not feel guilty, but in the eyes of the law, you are guilty. And Paul is telling us that we have real moral guilt. Now, for those of us that know Jesus, you know this even. Is it not your experience sometimes that you can hear, and you can hear again this morning, you are declared not guilty, but you still feel guilty. You still feel those condemning voices. Uh, I started reading recently uh, the biography of John Adams uh, by David McCullough. And I've seen a, a few of the, the episodes of the miniseries. Maybe you've seen that. And uh, he first starts coming to prominence, John Adams does, uh, at, at, on the heels of the Boston Massacre in 1770. The Boston is just um, uh, in, a, in a state of incredible tension with the British soldiers who are there in the oppression. And uh, one night there's a British soldier on, on uh, duty and a, a crowd gradually forms around him taunting him, throwing rocks at him. They've got clubs in their hands. They call in reinforcements. There's a standoff. Again, throwing rocks, throwing ice. Uh, One guy, one of the soldiers gets clubbed by one of the mob, and suddenly somewhere in the crowd the word fire is heard, and the soldiers open up uh, with their muskets, and five people are killed. Okay, the soldiers are hauled off to jail, and uh, they're brought to trial. Nobody wants to take their case because nobody loves the British in Boston. But John Adams, who also does not love the British, does love justice. And so he takes the case and he defends these soldiers. And over the course of the trial, even as the verdict is about to be read, as we see it in the miniseries at least, the crowd is just angry. And they are shouting uh, that these men need to be condemned. In the midst of all that uproar, you hear the judge speak his final word. 
and he says, not guilty. Now for those men, the light has just broken through. And in the midst of all these other voices yelling guilty, they hear the one voice that matters in that courtroom. They hear the voice of the judge saying, not guilty. In the midst of all those cries of protest, those men now leave the courtroom, free men, acquitted, declared not guilty, in spite of all the voices that they hear and that often we hear shouting in our ears as well. How does this justification work? How is God able to declare us not guilty? Well, that's where Paul goes next. We're declared not guilty in the courtroom because Jesus brought us out of slavery. That second half of verse 24, uh, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, justification is a legal courtroom word. Redemption is a marketplace and in specific uh, often used as a slavery word, as slaves were bought off the auction block, as they were purchased. What is this telling us? That God actually has come through the person of his son, Jesus, and paid a price for us. Uh, The way um, this gets played out in Scripture, uh, as far as the slavery that we talk about, if you were here for our Exodus series, we talked about God delivering his people out of this very real and physical slavery in Egypt as he brings his people to freedom. Well, we see Jesus tell us at the heart of that, what is our deeper slavery? This comes in John chapter 8. Jesus uh, is talking to a crowd. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Pharisees answered him, we, or the crowd answered him, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? And Jesus declared to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. What does Jesus say is our deepest slavery? It's to the sin that's grabbed a hold of our lives. Many of you can testify to what that feels like, and maybe we all can. What happens when that grabs a hold of your life and you just can't seem to shake it? That old struggle, that old addiction, that anger welling up, that strong desire welling up, that thing that you know is leading you down a path that only leads to destruction but feels so strong. Sin is slavery. And it's a slavery that leads us to death. And what Paul tells us right here is that Jesus comes to pay a price for us that we might be redeemed from slavery, that we might be bought back, that we might be brought free from the slavery to sin that has its hands around our throat. And then he comes down, narrows in one more step. You know, how does this justification in the courtroom, how does this... Uh, release from slavery at the auction block. How does it happen? Well, verse 25, by dying a sacrificial death on our behalf. Verse 25 says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Word we don't use very often. A propitiation uh, is a sacrifice that is offered up to, uh, to avert the wrath of God. Okay, now as you might imagine, and you might really think yourself, it's an offensive idea to, to many people and maybe many of us. Now, it might be because of the mistaken notions that this brings to mind of these sort of ancient, capricious gods who need to be uh, appeased by sacrifice so we can get what we want, right? You know, the crops aren't coming in. We're not getting the rain. Uh, maybe if we sacrifice a bull to the storm god, then, then he'll finally relent and give us the rain that we actually need. 
Uh, so may, maybe that's the picture that you, you have in your mind. Or you know, maybe you have this picture, simply this, that, uh, okay, God exists and, and we need his forgiveness. I buy that. But why can't God just say, I forgive you? Why all this stuff about sacrifice? Why can't God sort of be morally big enough and gracious enough to simply say, okay, let's just wipe the slate clean? I mean, we do this all the time with other people, right? Um, I mean, it happens all day in my house when one kid comes running down the hall, knocks the other one over, sends them sprawling and crying. They come up even in relatively uh, you know, unintended things like that, and they say, I'm sorry. And the other one says, I forgive you. Or, you know, ways you have been wronged. And you've just said, okay, effectively, I, I forgive you. It's gone. It's over. Why can't God just do that? Well, because the truth is, forgiveness is always costly. It always costs something. It costs something for you. Okay, let's take this. Some, uh, somebody steals $10 from you out of your wallet. You know who does it. It's your friend. Steals 10 bucks from you. Okay, or uh, somebody offends, you know, all kind. you plug in the blank as far as a sin that is sinned against you. You have two choices. You can either make that person pay, and you can do that in a variety of different ways. Let's say that person has wronged you, offended you, hurt your feelings, uh, you know, spoken ill of you. You can begin this very subtle, you know, behind-the-scenes uh, program of character assassination. Spoken word here and there to a friend or two, and the word gets out. Uh, you know, a cold shoulder. You can make that person pay. You can call the police and make, get your 10 bucks back. You can make that person pay, or you can forgive that person. But if you forgive that person, you are saying, I am not going to make you pay. I am going to pay. Because if that person stole 10 bucks from you and you say, I forgive you, who has to pay the 10 bucks? Well, you did. It was your $10. Or let's say somebody has offended you and you say, I forgive you. You are the one who still carries the wound from that. doesn't mean that it cripples you, but you're the one who took that shot, right? And you're, you took the last shot. Forgiving somebody always costs something. It never just evaporates. And so it's the same for God and his economy as well. Sin doesn't just evaporate. Someone has to pay. And at the end of the day, it's either going to be us or it's going to be God. And Romans 3 tells us the end of the day for God's people, the one who pays the price is Jesus. And it tells us that he pays that price through an actual sacrifice of his life for us to turn aside the wrath of God that otherwise we would take on our own heads. Now again, maybe you buy even that somebody's got to pay, but this seems like a high price, doesn't it? Somebody would have to die. Well, um, as one commentator says, it says, those who ignore or minimize the problem inherent in a holy God accepting sinners may well heed Anselm, an uh, 8th century Christian writer, heed Anselm's own warning, you have not yet considered the weight of sin. Because the price it must be paid to set us free, the sacrifice it must be made in order that our sin might be covered and forgiven, points exactly and directly to the weight of the sin that has to be forgiven. That it really was a breach that deep. A rending that serious between us and God. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. That's the price it brings. Now, what the Bible does tell us is, unlike all those uh, notions you might have in your head of the, you know, the capricious deity 
at his whim, uh, you know, hurling wrath around. Scripture tells us that wrath is not this sort of capricious, uncontrollable anger of God, but it is God's settled disposition against everything that is evil. And the truth is, we want that to be true. Don't you? At least at some level. Because think about the other alternative. That at the end of the day, God does not care about evil. He doesn't care about the injustice of the world. He does not care about the pain. He does not care about the suffering and the war and the abuse. He does not care about all the very serious things that have been done in your life against you. He doesn't care. He's not just, he is not wrathful against sin. We would scream at a God like that because we know that evil matters. God's wrath tells us that he knows it matters as well. And again, unlike that capricious God you may have in your mind that we have to appease through our sacrifice, look at the start of verse 25. Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Who brings this sacrifice? Who brings this healing and this solution to our sin? It is not us grasping to find the right price. It is God himself providing the sacrifice himself in the person of his son. God steps into the breach that our relationship with him might be healed. Okay, so we've got our problem. We've got God's solution to that problem. And then, you know, just briefly, how how do we connect with that? Well, two things about this. Verse 24, what does it say about this justification that's given to us? Verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. As a gift. That it is given to us. It's not earned. It's not merited. It's not won by us. Now, everybody loves gifts, right? I like giving gifts, getting gifts. Christmas, you love Christmas gifts. We all do. Maybe we do, right? Uh, My family used to do that. Maybe you all do something like this. Uh, My family, my mom used to make uh, these special Christmas cookies every year. And then we would drive around one Saturday and we'd we'd deliver them to the homes of of family friends of ours as, as a Christmas gift. We had other friends who would do the same thing. And Maybe you've done something like that. Maybe you've had this situation where you're at home, you've delivered all the cookies, and somebody shows up at your door and knocks on your door, and it's, it's, it's a friend of yours whom you forgot. And they're standing there with their Christmas gift for you. And you say, thank you. Thanks for bringing this by. And you close the door, and what do you do next? It is time to make another batch of cookies, <laughs> Right? And tomorrow, you're right back there at their door, smiling, saying, Merry Christmas. Because we can't just let a gift go unanswered, can we? Do we know what a gift is? God's gift to us in Jesus is the gift of His Son doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And you have to hear this. You cannot bake enough cookies. You can't. Whatever your moral version of that is. The Bible tells us it is this serious that this kind of salvation can only come to you by a gift, as a gift. And how do you get a gift if someone gives it to you? Well, it plops right down in your hands. And you receive it. And the Bible's word for that is faith. It's what's brought up in verse 25. Whom God put forth as propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And four other times in this short paragraph, it talks about God's gift being received by faith. 
Bible elsewhere tells us even that faith by which we turn to Jesus is a gift from him as well. Listen to what John Stott says about faith. He says, Christianity is not in its essence a religion at all. It is a gospel, the gospel, the good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath. That God's Son has died our death and borne our judgment. That God has mercy on the undeserving. And there is nothing left for us to do or even contribute. Faith's only function is to receive what grace offers. Faith is the eye that looks to Jesus. The hand that receives His free gift. The mouth that drinks the living water. Assurance of pardon. As we confess, what is the word that we hear spoken back? I forgive you. And how can we be assured of that pardon? By listening to the depth of that pardon, even as it's offered to us in Romans 3, it comes to us as a gift. That Jesus has done everything that is required for His people to be forgiven of their sins. Our forgiveness comes through Jesus and His sacrifice for us alone. Those voices going out into the solar system, is anyone listening? Can we be forgiven? And the answer of Jesus comes back loud and clear. Yes, I forgive you. And this very message in those three very beautiful words, I forgive you, stand really at the heart of uh, where our own passion for worship is going to come from. And again, our wider series on worship. We are always coming back to this. God's spoken word to us of I forgive you. Jesus' finished work on the cross because we are always people looking to Jesus, utterly dependent on him and giving thanks. Is your worship dry? Has it run out of steam? Has it run out of fuel? This is the only fuel that it can burn and sustain and last. This looking to Jesus, this forgiveness that comes from him. You want a life that is transformed in your worship, in your response to God, and the joy with which you go through every day? We come back to this because this is the word that is spoken over us. Not guilty. Not guilty. Forgiven. Accepted. Brought home. The message of the gospel for us. Let's pray. Father, would you open this up to us? We know through the course of our lives, at every step, we need our eyes open more and more to the reality of this, that we are saved through Jesus. That we are declared not guilty. That we are bought off the auction block. That we are freed from sin. That your wrath is turned away because of the goodness of your Son, whose life was poured out for us who died for our sin and was raised to life for our justification, that we would be a people set free. Lord, would this be the fuel for our worship even this week? Lord, some of us are discouraged, and we need to hear this word spoken to us again. Some of us feel condemned, even though we know that the reality is that in Jesus we're forgiven, but we just can't hear it. Would you speak this word to us again, that we might know again that it is true, Because of Jesus. Some of us maybe uh, have never heard this word spoken to us in a life-giving way before. 
Would you bring repentance and faith even right now? We might look to Jesus even for the first time and hear those beautiful words, I forgive you. And it's in the name of our Savior Jesus that we pray. Amen.